Like we have a good number present this morning. We appreciate the presence of everyone. We have visitors. We're glad that you're here and hope you can come back and be with us again. We are working our way through the letters to the seven churches of Asia found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So I encourage you to get a Bible and turn to the third chapter of the book of Revelation. That's where we'll be. We'll look at the first six verses of that chapter in a moment. But as a review of where we've been and kind of an introduction to what we're thinking of, we look at the seven churches of Asia and some of those were good churches. Some of those were good and bad. In fact, the majority of them were good and bad. There's some good things and commendable things and then there's some criticism to be offered. And there was one church that was just absolutely bad. There's nothing commendable said at all. So here's the situation we have. As you look across Asia Minor at the seven churches, you have a good and a bad and a good and bad and bad and a good and bad and a good. You have various churches of different kinds. We've repeatedly made the point that most of us would like to be in that good church where no criticism is to be offered. None of us want to be in a bad church where nothing commendable would be said, but probably we find ourselves quite often in churches where there are some things that are good and bad. Here are the churches we've considered so far. Ephesus was the church that left its first life. Smyrna was the church that was under pressure. Things were bad and about to get worse. Church at Pergamos was the church at Compromise. They had those who bought into the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. There was a church at Thyatira that was tolerant of Jezebel. Now we talk about the church at Sardis in chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Here's a church that may have been shocked to learn that they are dead. Here's a church that gets a letter that says, you're dead. Not that you're going to be, but you are dead. You have a name that lives, but you're dead. Perhaps you have visited churches and you walk away and you say, well, that church is dead. But you probably mean it in a different sense than this. You may say that it didn't have any life there. It looks like that they, maybe in a year or two, they're probably going to close the doors. They're dead. They're, they're inactive. This church was far from being inactive. But they got a letter that said, you're dead. They had many desirable qualities. And they still were said to be dead. So let's talk about a dead church. Have you ever thought of yourself as being a member of a church that's dead? If you're at Sardis, you are a part of that church. Let's read verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works and that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how that you've received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, that have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter that we just read was sent to the church at Sardis. We started with Ephesus and making our way clockwise around. And so we've gone from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamon to Thyatira. Now we're here at Sardis. We know little about the city of Sardis, what goes on in the city or what went on in the city. So we direct our attention to the church, which this letter does. And it is a church that indeed is a dead church. Two things we want to see. Let's start with this. I want us to talk about some good qualities that did not prevent their death. It was a church if we were to visit and we spend some time with them and we get to know this church and we may even place membership there. And we're coming and going with this church and so we're, we're, we're involved in activity with this church. There are going to be some things we have to walk away and say, here's some good things we saw in that church, but they did not prevent their death. What kind of things are we talking about? Well, first of all, I want you to notice that this church had a good reputation. Look at verse 1. He said, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. They had a good reputation. That might have been based on their past stand. Perhaps they had taken a strong stand in the past. They had stood for truth. They had stand, stood against error. Maybe they had dealt with sin in the past, different than they do now. I'm not sure. But that might be based on their past stand. It might be based on members that are known. Maybe there's some members in that church that stand out, that are indeed faithful and that are diligent and are shining examples of what Christians should be. That might have been based upon the preachers that they've had or that they have now. Those teachers that are working among them and that are preaching and teaching them that their reputation is that they're good and they're alive because of the kind of preaching they're hearing. It might be based upon how they stood on, on one issue, where they stood strong on this particular issue. And they have a name that lives. Let's go back to verse 1 and read again. I know your works. You have a name that you're alive. You have a strong reputation. Perhaps you've known of churches that fit that same bill that <clears throat> you know that they have a good reputation and you thought that it was a strong church. What were you basing it on? Maybe their past stand. Maybe you know of their history back through the years. How they stood 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or 40 years ago on some issue. Maybe you know two or three families in that church. You know nothing of the elders. You know nothing of the preacher. But you know some families that are there and you're impressed with them and you think that perhaps reflects the whole church. Maybe you know their history of their preachers and you say, I know this preacher that was there. He was solid and he was followed by this preacher and he was solid. And I know the kind of teaching they've heard. They must be a good church. They have a good reputation. Maybe you know how they stood on one particular issue. Maybe when the issue of creation rose up or maybe it was the divorce and remarriage or it may have been fellowship or it may have been some other issue and they stood strong. They may have even gotten rid of some preacher that was not teaching the truth, and you're impressed with that. And so you think this is a good church. What a reputation they have. Sometimes when traveling on vacation, I have gone and sought out churches that had a good reputation. 
I want to visit with that church. I don't want bases. I know a couple of families there. I know where they stood in the past. I know some of the history of the preachers they had maybe 20 years ago and 10 years ago and even five years ago. And I know they were solid. This must be a solid church. One particular place I knew they had fired a preacher and I knew why they fired him for what he had been teaching. And I was impressed with that. I want to go visit that church. When you get there, you're disturbed because you're hearing things that are being said that are absolutely involved, nothing from the scriptures. And so you're not impressed now when you see them, but they have a strong reputation because of their past. This church had a strong reputation, but that did not prevent their death. What I'm learning from this strong reputation is that some churches live on a name. Perhaps this church was trying to do that. Some churches live in the past. Because they stood strong years ago on this particular question, this particular issue, they think they're strong now because they were strong back then. They're living in their past. Maybe their doctrinal stand on the issue of the day means they're strong. Maybe today it's the divorce and remarriage question, or maybe it's the fellowship question, and we're standing strong. That means we're strong in all areas. We have a name that indeed lives. What I'm learning from this context is that it's possible to have a lot of things right and still be wrong. You might even individually have a good reputation and yet something is missing. The church did at the church at Sardis. Here's something else I'm learning from this context. It's possible that churches can change. They had. Here's a church that had built a good name and so at one point they were strong. They're not as strong as they once were. Maybe this church has a good reputation. Maybe people around that know something about the church at El Bethel, they say, I know some of the preachers they've had. I know something of, of some of the elders. I know several of the families, and they are good people, and we have a strong name and reputation. We may not be living up to the reputation. Churches are not always what they appear to be. You may think this church is strong, or that church is strong, or this church is what it ought to be. Churches are not always what they appear to be. Here is something that did not prevent their death, but here's something else. We'll go back to verse 1 with me. They seem to have an active program. One of the things some people are looking for when they visit a church, we want to see a church that's active. I want to find a church that's involved in some things. I don't want to see a church that is absolutely doing nothing that's dead. I want to find a church that has an active program. Let's go back to verse 1 and notice again in verse 1, I know your works. We've quoted Haley several times in the context when works are mentioned that are not condemned, they must be good works. I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive. I know what you've done. They had works and yet they were dead. What I'm learning from that is it's not enough to be busy. Churches may be active, they may be involved, but it must be lawful works. Now some will say, you know, this church over here, they're dead because they're not doing anything. They're not very active. And so we're in a live church because we're very active. This church was active, but they still were dead. In Matthew chapter 7, many would say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then I'll profess to them, I never knew you, you who work lawlessness, acting without authority. It's not enough to be busy, it must be lawful. It's not enough to be busy at just some things. Let's go to verse 2 now of our context of Revelation chapter 3. And notice in verse 2, I have not found your works perfect before God. 
complete before God is the idea. It's not saying flawless. Your works are not complete. You're working. There are works involved, but not all the works that you need to be doing are you doing. It's not enough to be busy at just some things. We saw that in the rebuke that Jesus gave to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Here's a church, for example. You might find a church that has a good Bible class program. And you visit with them and you're impressed. I'll tell you what, I'm impressed with their Bible class program. Their resource room is incredible. The curriculum they're following is outstanding. You say, I'm impressed. They're very active. They've got an active program going on. And yet they may never withdraw from the disorderly. They may have a name that lives, but they're dead. The active program didn't keep them from dying. Or there may be a church that has an active personal evangelism program where they're very involved in evangelism. Boy, they're reaching out and they're teaching. And they're converting people. And they're having home Bible studies. They have a radio program. And they have various things that are going on where they're attracting people and they're baptizing people. And they're growing in number. And yet they may be very soft on a number of things. It may be that a church supports many preachers. They may be sending out thousands and thousands of dollars in support. And yet they have a problem with worldliness. They have an active program, but that doesn't prevent them from dying. Some churches are involved in a building program. They're building a new building because they're growing and they're expanding. And at the same time, they're neglecting the spiritual. Here's something else that did not prevent their death. Seemingly a peaceful atmosphere. I say seemingly because the text doesn't mention anything about this. But I tell you what the text doesn't do. There doesn't give us any evidence of division or strife. There's no evidence that there was something going on in their midst that was pulling them apart. Where there is internal strife going on. All evidence would point to the fact that there is a peaceful atmosphere. And so you visit the church and you say, things seem to be calm here. Things seem to be peaceful. They're not arguing with one another. They're not fighting with one another. There are no factions that are rising up. There's not a Jezebel over here that's rising up like we saw in the church at Thyatira where we visited last week. But I want you to understand that peace must not be at the toleration of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they had a brother there in their midst that was guilty of fornication, but they weren't saying anything about that. They seemed to be want to be at peace with all of that, not doing anything about it, and yet they were condemned for that. Toleration of sin is not what we pay, the price we pay for peace. Peace must not be the toleration of error. That is, we don't have peace at the toleration of, of error that's being taught. Paul told Timothy to preach the word, that he was also to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Error must be refuted. Peace must not come because of indifference. Let's get ahead of ourselves to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. And there we read about a church that was lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. They were indifferent. We'll come to that a little bit later. But peace must not come from indifference. Sin is no problem to those who don't care. And so maybe we're having peace and harmony like a car and there's sin right in our midst, but we're tolerating because we don't care. Error doesn't matter to those who are apathetic. Who cares if that error is being taught? Because we don't care. I want to suggest to you that some people love peace and harmony over truth. But there's something else that did not prevent their death. They had a good reputation, they had an active program, they had a peaceful atmosphere seemingly, and there were some good members there. 
You say, well, I don't, I visited a church and it seemed like it's a great church because there are good people there that are very friendly, they're very active, they're very excited. And so I'm really glad to be a part of this church because these are good people that are there. Look at verse four of our text. Revelation chapter three, look at verse four. He said, you have a few names even in Sardis that have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. There were some good members there. Here's something I'm learning from that. Good members will not answer for the sins of others. Good members will not answer for the sins of others, but be careful now and watch this. Good members will not remove the sin of others. And what I mean by that is, you might have a church that has the reputation of being alive, and there's some good people there, but that doesn't remove the sin of those that are creating a problem, whatever that sin may be. Good members at Corinth didn't mean there were not problems, serious problems at Corinth. There were there good people at Corinth. There certainly were good people, but they had a fornicator and that didn't take away his sin. Still have a problem with fornication. There was another problem there, chapter 6. There were brothers going to law with one another. Litigation was a problem. Having good people in the church at Corinth didn't mean there were not problems over litigation. Good members can remain good in spite of others. But I want to suggest to you from chapter 5 and verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, good members can change as others influence them. You do not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lot. Yeah, church may have good members. And there may be a problem. They may be dead. There may be toleration. There may be uh, other problems that we've been dealing with in these letters to the seven churches. But those good people could easily be corrupted by that sin or by that era. So what are we seeing in the, in the church at Sardis. We see a church that had a good reputation. Here's some things that did not prevent their death. Here's a church that gets a letter and says, we're dead. What do you mean we're dead? I thought we had a good name. You did. I, I thought we had an active program. We do. I thought we were at peace. We are. I thought we had some good members here. We do. Still dead. That leads us to a second thing. We know the good qualities that did not prevent their death. Secondly, let's talk about preventing death and reviving life. Is there anything found in these six verses that may have suggested here's what could have been done to prevent the death that this letter is all about? Or now that you're dead, something that can be done to revive the life in this church. You say, I've... I've visited with a church and they were dead. I wish they could somehow infuse life into them. This letter is designed to do that. Let's see what that is. Let's take note of the fact that verses 2 and 3 says they needed to be watchful. In the past, they need to be watchful now. So go back to your text if you've left that and notice it verse 2. Verse 2 says, be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain. Look at verse 3. Remember, therefore, from what you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch. Twice, he tells them they need to be watchful. They lost their ground by carelessness, and now it's time to wake up. In other words, they're getting a letter that says you have a good reputation, but you're dead, and you're dead because you didn't watch. That's why it happened. What he's urging them to do is to take a look at where you are and where that's going to lead. Be alert. Look around. Pay attention. Wake up. 
And in waking up, look around and see, here's where I am, that's where I was, and this is where I'm going. Be watchful. Matthew Henry said this, Whenever we're off our watch, we lose ground. And therefore we must return to our watchfulness against sin and Satan and whatever is destructive to the life and power of godliness. Are you looking around in your own life and looking around in all your surroundings and looking at anything that is contrary to the power of godliness and fighting against that and resisting that? We lose ground by our carelessness. We need to be watching. In other words, be on guard and be alert to dangers. Look back at where you've been and how you've changed. Here's a church that had a good reputation. What built that reputation? What gave you that good name? What made those good members the good members? How have you changed in that regard? Secondly, here's what you need to do. You need to watch. If you'd have been watching, you wouldn't have died. And if you watch now, you can revive that life. Secondly, strengthen the things that remain. Let's go to verse 2 now of our text. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. What does that suggest? In other words, use and exercise the strength that you have. Well, let that sink in for a moment. Use and exercise the strength that you have. You may be weak. The church may be weak, but whatever weakness you have, whatever strength you have, it may be small. Use and exercise what you have, and it will increase. In your own spiritual life, as an individual, you say, I feel weak. Whatever strength you have, use the strength you have, and it will increase. Let's go to Luke chapter 17. At least in thought, if you don't turn there. Remember, the Lord had told the disciples to forgive. And he said, forgive unto 70 times 7. And he said, if a brother comes to you saying, I repent, seven times in a day saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the disciples thought they couldn't do that. They said, Lord, increase our faith. In other words, we don't know if we have the faith to do that or not. So you know the next thing the Lord said? He said, if you have the faith as the grain of a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds. If you have faith, like the grain of a mustard seed. In other words, even a small degree of faith, use the faith you have and it'll increase. It's a simple matter. Someone says, I don't have any strength. I, I can't lift 20 pounds. How much can you lift then? Well, I can lift five, but I can't lift 20. I need to lift 20. Well, if you can lift five, you lift the five and use the strength you have and you build the strength so you can finally get to the 20. The same thing is true spiritually. You say, my faith isn't very strong. Well, whatever faith you have, even that smallest seed of faith, use the faith you have and it will grow and it'll increase. That's what the Lord is saying here. Strengthen the things that remain. Some think that this refers to people. Meaning that you warn and strengthen them lest they become like the rest. You have some good, strong people there at Sardis, but you have a good reputation, but you're dead. You have some problems there. Those that are still strong, good, strengthen them lest they become weak like the rest of them. That may be what he's talking about. 
It is more likely that he's referring to deeds and not people. In other words, your love and your faith and the service that you have, strengthen it lest it die too. And you can see in your own life that maybe here's something you're really doing good in, but there are other things that maybe you're not quite doing well in. The things that you're doing good in, strengthen those lest they become weak like the rest. Maybe your faith. Maybe your prayer life. It may be your studying of the scriptures. Maybe your service to others. They had started, but they had not continued. Evidence? Notice the statement that he makes at verse, verse 2. That I have not found your works perfect before God. Again, the word perfect, if not always, almost always. But I think always means complete perfection in the sense of completion. Fullness. I'm not talking about flawless. There's not a one of us could say, my works are flawless before God. But the question is, is it complete before God? Are we doing all that we should? I've not found yours complete. You started, but you didn't finish. Have you started? You're running the race, but you stopped and you quit. And you didn't finish. Albert Barnes said this, in the lowest state of religion in a church, there may be a few, perhaps, quite obscure and of humble rank, who are mourning over the desolation of Zion and who are sighing for better times. I say amen. Look at verse 3 now. What should be done to prevent that? What could have been done to stop this? And so you say, well, uh, maybe I'm not in a church that's dead, but it, we're headed that way. What can I do to prevent this death? What can the leaders do to prevent death? And if we are dead, what can we do to revive that? Well, be watchful, strengthen the things that remain. Verse 3 says, remember and repent. Look at verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. What they're to do is to remember how they had embraced the gospel. He's not saying just remember the gospel that you embrace. He's going to say that, but... He first focuses on, remember how, look at verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard. Perhaps he's talking about the zeal and the excitement that's now gone, like at Ephesus. Maybe we need to look back and think, you know, when I first became a Christian or before I became a Christian and I was learning the truth, I was so excited and I couldn't ask enough questions and I couldn't, I couldn't study enough. I just was thriving and, and, and thirsting after righteousness. Oh, I was so excited to learn. Where'd that go? Where'd that go? Remember how you embrace the gospel. Perhaps it's the joy with which they had received it that's now gone. They embraced it with joy. They've learned the truth. Can't wait to tell somebody else about this message. Where's that joy now? But they're also told to remember what they had heard. That is the truth. That now may be forgotten. Wasn't that the case with the Hebrews? For in the time you ought to be teachers, you have need someone teach you again. Forgotten it. The things you once knew. Remember what you've heard that you may not be practicing now. 
Remember what you used to practice and how you used to be stronger and more diligent and more faithful and you may not be doing that now. So what do you do about it? Watch this carefully or you'll miss it. What do you do about that? Well, what's his point here of remembering? You remember how you embraced the truth? Remember how, how you embraced the truth when you did? And remember the truth that you embraced. Remember that. And what? And repent. That's a change. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. In other words, I just don't remember. You know how we used to, we used to embrace the truth. And remember how excited we were? Yeah. No, don't do that. You remember how excited you were and return to that excitement. That's repentance. Remember the joy with which you accepted the truth? Return to that joy. Remember how you practiced the truth before? Return to that practice. Repent. Change and go back to that. So what was to be done? He mentions three things. This could have prevented their death. This is going to revive their life. Be watchful. Are you watching? Strengthen the things that remain before you lose it all. And remember and repent. If this church were to get a letter, do you think it, the letter would say, you have a good reputation, but you're dead? Got some good folks there, but you, you're dead. Is that the letter? Is that what it would say? Would it be a commendable letter that says you're good and I don't see anything criti critical to say? Or would it be all critical and nothing good? What would the letter say? If the letter said you're dead, that might be in spite of some good qualities. You say, I don't think this church is dead because, and the things you list as good qualities may be in spite of the fact that we're dead. If the letter were sent to you as an individual and not to the church, would it say you have a good reputation, but you're dead? You say, well, I'm not dead. I'm not, not spiritually dead. I, I, look at what I do. That may be you're doing that and you're dead in spite of that. That was the way this church was. Here's some good qualities that did not prevent their death. Here's how they're to prevent their death. And here's how they should and could revive their life. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?